0: Welcome to the EquipCast for the Archdiocese of Omaha. Designed to help leaders to transform their cultures, to embody the pastoral vision, to be one church, encountering Jesus, equipping disciples, and living mercy.
1: Welcome, everybody. My name is Jim Jansen. I'm the Director of Pastoral Services for the Archdiocese of Omaha. My co-host today, Father Jeff Lorig, is coming to us from Midtown, Omaha. He's the pastor of St. Thomas More and St. Joan of Arc. Father, how are you doing?
0: I'm doing really well. I'm excited about the Equipcast today.
1: Yeah, we've got a really great episode. So here's our guest today, David Drazd, uh, old friend. David and I knew each other years ago and uh, got reacquainted when his work as a research coordinator, a demographer for the University of Nebraska at Omaha, made the front page of maybe the Columbus newspaper, um, but we were fascinated by the story and then noticed like, wait, David Draws, I know David. So we got in touch, we reconnected, David continued to wow us with some of the insight that the census data and some of the demographics for uh, our, our ministry field, really the landscape that the Lord is calling us into. Just it was such a gift for many of us here at the archdiocese and a number of parishes here. That we thought, man, we need to we need to share this a little bit more broadly. So, David Draws, welcome, welcome to the podcast.
2: Yeah, thanks so much uh, for having me here. Hopefully, we can provide some good insight.
1: So, David, we always like to start with our guests. Just tell us a little bit about your story. You know, where the Lord entered your life. A little bit about your faith journey.
2: Well, I'm uh, the youngest of eight children of a very strong Catholic family, small town, rural Nebraska, uh, west of Columbus. I went off to college uh, at University of Nebraska Lincoln and uh, at first didn't really know where to get involved. But about my junior or senior year, I started to go to the Newman Center. And and that's where faith kind of transformed from something that was important and I was definitely involved in to something where I was more engaged. So we would have the community nights, we'd have public service opportunities. We would pray at uh, the Planned Parenthood in in Lincoln, a variety of different things. And becoming good friends with people who are also strong people of faith is probably where my development really came from a spiritual standpoint. So the other thing that I had really always noticed was a connection with the Bible and Jesus speaking to us in the Bible. I could just, you know, picture those stories of how Jesus's life went and the parables that he used and always thought he was kind of speaking to me a little bit personally. So uh, eventually met a spouse and, and now we have a daughter who's a junior at Gross Catholic. So I, I started at UNO about 17 years ago and have been doing
1: the same type of demographic research work ever since. Okay, now let's just pretend I'm in the audience. What's a demographer? <laughs> what, what do you do? Demography is
2: basically anyone who studies population and the characteristics of the population. So mainline demographics are things such as um, age, uh, sex, and race or ethnicity. But more broadly speaking, then we also get into the socioeconomic style variables such as income and poverty, or unemployment, and educational attainment, marital status and family size and uh, types of housing and just, just all sorts of characteristics. So it's basically um, those things that go into people's day-to-day lives that might drive some of their personal situation. So what I mean by that is that like you would tend to see with higher levels of education more likely to be employed, more likely to make a higher wage, and then also more likely to be a homeowner and things like that. So uh, those demographic background characteristics kind of set the plate for the situations that people are are in as as
1: we minister to them. Okay, so let's let's dive in here a little bit. Tell us, like, what's what's happening in Nebraska? What's generally you know the kind of the demographic uh, trends here? There's a lot, you know. So
2: I'll, I'll start with those top line demographics. So when it comes to age and and aging, that's probably the the biggest phenomenon that's out there as as people follow the baby boom population. And next year in 2021, the leading edge of the first baby boomers are gonna turn 75. Obviously 10 years ago, they were turning 65 and and that's a special milestone when you're thinking Mm -hmm. of retirement. But at 75, things are a little bit different. Uh, Maybe there's more health issues. Uh, Maybe it's harder to get around the house. So that could uh, impact a person's availability to come to mass, for example, if Mm. they're having a hard time getting around, uh, or especially now in the age of COVID, we all know that age is a a risk factor for uh, the severity of of the virus. So Nebraska is aging from that standpoint of the baby boomers, that large segment of the population population aging forward each and every year into different stages of their life. And and it'll be very soon that all the baby boomers will be age 65 or older. So that has a lot of impact on our workforce. So when I talk to like the state chambers or local chambers of commerce, they're very interested to see a graph that I put up of what we call the prime age workforce, which just means ages 25 to 64. So out of college and before that typical retirement age, and in almost all areas besides Lincoln and Omaha, that's going to trend downward over the next 10 years. And one of the hardest things that employers have talked about regarding their challenges is being able to find skilled workers. So the point is that, okay, yes, that's difficult. And it's going to get more difficult because the pool of people that you can select from who are, of you know, working age is going to be going down as the baby boomers you know, hit age 65 and, and look to retire. So, uh, aging is a key aspect. Diversity is the other one, where we're almost all areas in Nebraska are seeing our population become more diverse, meaning a higher portion of, of persons of color. And uh, again, the background characteristics are different. So, when an area sees growth, say for example, in Hispanic Latino population. A lot of times, the, the educational levels are substantially lower. Statewide, Nebraska's Hispanic population has about, about 50% have completed high school, uh, and that ranks relatively low among the states. So there are some some challenges that that brings. You know, you, you, we understand the language challenges. But one thing that, again, the demographic data tell us is that the ability to speak English is very high among the the children of the first Hispanic-Latino population that came into Nebraska in the 1990s. So for anybody who's born here in Nebraska, virtually no problem with, with being able to speak English. And as we know, that, that helps uh, people get messages
1: to their parents from school or, or things of that sort. Wow. So Nebraska is getting older and more diverse at the same time. And I just, I love the way almost instantaneously you were drawing out a consequence for us in the church and for ministry that honestly, I was, I I heard the rest of what you said, but I was distracted, just thinking how often now as a, a parish thinks through the question, gosh, should we offer online, online ministry, or should we be live streaming the mass? And sometimes the question, well, no, 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 everybody in our parish is old, but well, gosh, like as the population gets older, even more so mobility restrictions and perhaps self-limitations because of a desire to, you know, to avoid exposure to to illness. Boy, more and more people are going to want to access the faith in ways that they feel safe and comfortable with, many times online.
2: Yeah, we might have a need to get creative. And that's, I think a lot of that has happened this spring and and summer as places have adjusted Mm to the restrictions, and uh, I'm I'm not involved in those decisions too much. But you can imagine how challenging they were. It was very difficult to accommodate everyone. And moving forward, there just might be more and more people who have some sort of challenge due to aging. And we know that the prevalence of various disabilities goes up uh, as people age. Obviously, hearing and, and eyesight are a common one. So. I know, for example, our, our parish in St. Klumpkill, Papillion, offers hearing assistance for those at Mass, or they do, again, record at least one of the homilies from the various weekend Masses and, and put that up online in case it is easier for people to hear. So I, I think there'll just be more and more of that as we move forward here, as we see the population age.
0: So I actually was talking to somebody this morning. A young person who wants to come back to this parish in the Westgate neighborhood the St. John of Arc, and, and and kind of what we've heard since I've been here is that, oh, it's, this is an older neighborhood, and you know there's not much use, so there's not much hope either, like that that things could really turn around. But I mentioned like, well, I'm pretty sure a lot of the, a lot of these people around here are baby boomers, and while certainly we need to serve them, but also you can't expect them to be here in five or ten years. These homes are going to become empty, so the church can't just think about okay, we got to serve the baby boomers. We have to get ourselves ready to serve the the younger families that are going to be moving in here.
2: Yeah, the transition that's coming as people either downsize and and go maybe from a owned home to a rented property where they don't have to do snow shoveling and, and take care of a yard in the summertime. We're going to see more houses open up because of that. And, and then, of course, deaths will occur too. It is possible that some, what you might call older parishes, might, might make a transition to have newer families come in as that housing does change over. I think you might especially see that diversity increase just because that might be, in, in general, a little bit more affordable housing as opposed to what you're going to see on, on the fringe or, or the, where all the new developments are. There's going to be younger people go there too, but, but for different reasons. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, Housing, that's another one that's going to see a lot of change here in the years ahead.
1: I feel like already you can see like, gosh, there's so many applications to how we minister to those who are in the geographic boundaries of our parishes, how we care for people, how maybe difficult decisions can be enlightened by the peak into the future that some of the demographics give us. But fundamentally, this is shepherding. You know, I mean, one of Jesus's best parables to illustrate the heart of the Father is the shepherd who counts his sheep. And it's in the counting that he notices that one is missing. Yeah, I feel like this, this could be a really powerful tool for us to really care for those in, entrusted to us. That's a diverse group of people in the Archdiocese of Omaha. And I'm meaning not just, you know, diverse in the sense of ethnicity, but the background. I mean, the Archdiocese of Omaha stretches from, of course, Omaha all the way up to O'Neill and, and Boyd County. Can we talk a little bit about the rural archdiocese? What's happening there?
2: Yeah, a lot. And 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 before I before I mention that, just since you're talking about the shepherd, I, I think the demographic data is kind of how you know the sheep. You know, <laughs> so so for any like uh, pastoral leadership, that's a way for them to really understand where they're people are coming from, or again, what their challenges might be, what the opportunities might be. So, so that, that's one of the advantages in the data. Regarding rural Nebraska, we have seen population decline for quite some time. And that was really something that was a, a special issue in, in the 1980s with the farm crisis, when Nebraska had more than 100,000 people leave the state.
1: So you're saying during the 80s in the farm crisis, 100,000 people left Nebraska during that, during that decade or during the years of the farm crisis?
2: During the decade, we had a net loss of 100,000. So there's really no way to know exactly how many people left. Maybe it was 300,000, but 200,000 others moved into the state for a variety of reasons. But So, so the net loss was 100,000 people, which was relatively large of course but not unprecedented and if you look at the figures back over time uh, we had even larger out migrations in you know the 1930s and 1940s so for a lot of northeast nebraska the county populations hit their all-time highs in 1930 or even even earlier for some locations and have just been steadily downtrending since and one of the reasons for that is is the college phenomenon. And that has kicked in more recently, but it's people like myself, my wife's an example. She grew up uh, in Dakota County. You head off to college, complete your degree or working on it, maybe you start an internship and find a job there in your urban location, or you meet your spouse. You know, those college ages, very common for dating. And so if that spouse grew up in a different location, especially Lincoln or Omaha, it's much less likely that you're going to make it back to rural areas. Mm -hmm. So while there definitely is some movement of those in their late twenties and early thirties from urban to rural, it's usually only about 20% of the level of folks that leave in their late teens and early twenties to go to college. So we just keep having this net loss and then the ramification as you lose those younger people is that that's, of course, when people and their family formation and, and childbearing years. So if you're relatively low on 30-somethings, you're just not going to have a high level of births. And decade after decade after decade, as this happens, that pool of people in their 30s just gets smaller and smaller, and that puts pressure on the Child numbers. So that's why we've seen school consolidations, whether public or private and parochial, across Nebraska and especially in certain parts of of the Archdiocese. So um, it's just one of the factors that we have to deal with. And I would just mention that, again, Nebraska has a lot of small towns because the way that we were developed back in the 1870s, 1880s was based upon either the railroad or the ability to travel by horse and carriage. And that's why towns are like 10 miles apart, roughly, because that Mm -hmm. was kind of like what a trip could get you or when the railroad would have to refuel and things of that sort and drop off supplies. So we're in a different environment totally now with, with being able to drive numerous miles. And that's one of the reasons why some of our small towns population has gone down as well. You don't need as many people in a close proximity, so they spread out a little bit more. And of course, we've seen family sizes go
1: down over time and things like that too. How much, is it a universal trend or are there places where uh, towns seem to be growing? Well, it seems like
2: there's a, a size continuum. So the smaller you are, the more challenges there are. So for Nebraska, kind of a nice even cut point is if you're a city of 5,000 or more, you're tending to do pretty well from a, a demographic population growth standpoint. And then if you're smaller than 5,000, especially smaller than uh, 2,500 or 1,000, then we've seen higher levels of population loss in those areas. Mm-hmm. And it probably relates to just what people are going to do for work in smaller locations. And you know some business, but definitely not the level of business it might require a bachelor's degree as what your larger locations would be, especially as we get into um, our cities that have uh, at least 10,000 people, you know, like Columbus or Norfolk or South Sioux City. There's just a little bit different environment there, more possibilities and opportunities for those with higher education.
0: I think there, there could be, I don't know, this is me maybe hoping for the future, a trend towards moving to small towns, maybe not the small, small towns, but I don't, I don't know if you follow any other podcasts, but Joe Rogan, who has one of the, probably the most listened to podcasts on the internet. He just announced the other day that he's moving out of Los Angeles. Cause he's like, you know, if you look at it, like this is untenable. Like we th- we can't support all these people. I'm getting out and I'm gonna move to Texas and I'm gonna get into a small town where I can get to the clubs. Cause he's a stand up comedian. Uh, so he can get to Houston and Austin. But like he's got a lot of influence, and I wonder if there's a, there's a lot of people thinking in that way. But especially with COVID, just like you know, Douglas County is is a hotspot. South Sioux City is a hotspot. I I wonder if there if there maybe this is like if there's a a silver lining to all this stuff. I know there's been lots of silver linings, but I just wonder mm-hmm. if there there might be a trend towards a smaller town life.
2: Yeah, it it's definitely gonna change people's perceptions and and location preferences. So we're already hearing a lot of people who have left New York, New Jersey and and aren't going to go back. For here in Nebraska, we don't know what those trends are yet per se, but as we've seen an ability to work from home and not necessarily have to be tied into an office that's in probably an urban location, I think it opens the door for those who are interested or maybe they want to move back to be closer to their parents or where they grew up now in the post-COVID
1: environment, I think they'll have more opportunities to do so because we've gotten used to working remote. I'm hearing advice there, right, for like small town chamber of commerce, start recruiting New York and New Jersey and Connecticut. It's like, hey, we got a lovely, beautiful church here, (laughs) inexpensive real estate, beautiful sunsets.
2: Yeah, and I don't think it has to be that dramatic either. I, I think the lower hanging fruit would be to recruit among Lincoln and Omaha or Des Moines or somewhere more in the region because it, it's a hard sell to get people from the coast to come here for, for whatever reason. Usually once they do, they, they love it. But the perception is that it's all corn and nothing to do in you know, et cetera, et cetera. But they find, you know, when people come for the College World Series, for example, they just really love the dynamic nature of of Omaha and and how much there is to do the zoo and and all the philanthropic efforts for arts and entertainment and things like that. So marketing is is a challenge. I think the places that are more um, in tune with that, I I think they will do better. Uh, You know, they might already be starting that process of saying, Hey, we're, you know, we're smaller. We, are not going to have uh, the, the types of outbreaks that you might see in these larger mega cities. Douglas that be- County
0: and uh, is growing though, right? Douglas and Sarpy, there's been a huge population boom.
2: Yeah, Sarpy so counties are a growth leader in the state by far. Last decade, it grew almost 30%. This decade in the 2010s, it'll, it'll probably be more on 20% growth. The housing marketing has been a little bit cautious ever since the 08, 09 kind of downturn in housing. They haven't Really, ever gotten quite to the same level of of building permits and construction as we we saw, say, in the mid 2000s. But Douglas County, very similar in Western Omaha, see a lot of new housing, and that leads to the population growth. Statewide, we have about 25 counties who are seeing population growth out of 93, so it's not a very high percentage. Um, But there are rural success stories, and there are also a lot of, again, these. Places with a city of 10,000 that are definitely doing quite well. Kearney, Norfolk, Columbus. Could you highlight just one or two of those rural success stories? Well, one that comes to mind is uh, Webster County, which is is down on the southern border with Kansas, and they have some special uh, telemarketing and uh, inbound call service jobs that they've developed over the last 15 years or so. And when it comes to, again, net migration, having more people move in than move away, they're one of the few rural communities that have done that. Another one would be Garfield County, which is Burwell, Nebraska, so just a little bit west of the Archdiocese. But they have the Calamus Dam, so kind of a special recreational aspect and again we've talked about baby boomers and some of them want to retire in a location where there there is that recreational aspect of fishing and you know, being outdoors and um, again far from your neighbors perhaps so we've seen in migration there as well but it just kind of depends on every unique um, circumstance there are a lot of places that have sizable foundations and things that you know, Nebraskans are very giving. So, so we do um, see a lot of support from the population that lives there.
1: Father, you were a, a pastor in the rural archdiocese up in Creighton, but now, Father, you know, you're heading pastoral planning for the archdiocese. What are some of the implications for our faith community, for our parishes in the rural area? What does this mean for us?
0: First of all, I think that the, you can follow the trends, but they do change over time, right? So, you know, that's why I'm sort of cautious about when people want to get in a conversation about closing parishes, I just want to hesitate a little bit because, first of all, the church doesn't envision that we would close parishes. So I just don't think it's the mm-hmm. first option. And I know that, like, logically and practically, people think we should close parishes. And I would prefer to find a different way to keep them open and support them. At the end of the day, if you can't support it financially and if you you don't have enough priests... You have to figure out something else but i think you know practically that's where it impacts us in the rural counties i think you have mentioned before that, that the rural counties are smaller today than they were in the 1800s and yeah it's a
2: it's an amazing statistic for our smallest rural locations that uh, again there was more population here in frontier days in like 1890 when, you know, no running water or, or very limited, no electricity than what there is today. So it, it is very surprising. And, you know, one ramification of that is, is again, what the number of kids will be, you know, we have a lot of, lot of rural schools. And just speaking broadly across the state, compared back to 2000, we only have nine counties that have more kids under 18 today than 20 years ago. So you know, that's like 80 some counties that have fewer kids. And the number of kids is 25, 30, 35% below where it was just 20 years ago. So it kind of begs the question, will consolidations, including among the public school system, take place because those numbers are going down?
0: Yeah, that's certainly a question they constantly had in Knox County, where I was for five years, and then I was in Holt County for four. So those are struggling communities, although I was on the economic development board for Creighton, Nebraska. So people weren't giving up. They were trying to find new ways to bring commerce in and and to bring guests in. So, yeah. um, So for example,
2: in in Holt County, in in data I compiled for the Nebraska Community Foundation, they have seen a rise in births there. So over the last 10 years, roughly, it's bottomed, it's trended back upward. They've done a lot to try to get younger people to come back. And, and I mentioned before that you know a lot of places that the number of 30-year-olds who come back, as opposed to the people who leave for college, is maybe only 20 percent come back. In in Holt County, that's been around 40 or 50 percent. So again, still not enough to be neutral. They're still losing because of the college phenomenon, but it shows that those efforts can be successful as you, again, either cater to or at least stress the positives of low cost of living, you know, you can know your neighbors, low crime. I mean, the rural,
1: rural places have a lot
2: of advantages, but a lot of challenges too.
1: And it seems like it's forcing a the creativity. There's opportunities now with what the internet is providing in terms of employment and connecting over a distance that certainly not easy, but there's, there's, there's opportunities hiding in there. And I think to, to put a,
2: you know, nice bow on what we're talking about is, is in, in rural areas, so many of the same people who are very dedicated and committed are, are doing so many things. They're involved in church. They they might be involved on a community organization. They might be a volunteer firefighter, just because since there's not as many hands, the hands that are there having to do, do more. And, and you kind of worry that there could be some some burnout or just, you know, People can't do everything. They're trying to work. They're trying to raise kids and a family. Uh, So there are a lot of demands on people's times, I'd say, especially in in rural Nebraska, since they're so involved.
0: Yeah. So when you ask, you know, what what do you have? There's nothing to do there in those small towns. Well, (laughs) all those people there are busy, you know, as EMTs and volunteering at the church and doing the town festival. And, but it's their life. It's really like, it's just fun. It's, it's not like you don't have to go do anything else.
1: It makes leaders too. Yeah. Maybe it's just a Nebraska bias or stereotype, but those types of involvement and that necessity of community connection helps to build leaders, experience matters. And, you know, as the communities adjust to the realities that they're facing, Leaders that know each other and and people with experience serving in whatever right in in a religious context or just as an as an EMT, that's a tremendous resource. Let's let's talk a little bit about urban Omaha because you know we're no Chicago or Philadelphia, but there's there's a fair amount of what feels very urban. What's happening in the urban parts of Nebraska or Omaha in particular? Yeah, well, one
2: one thing you know we tend to follow um, specific numbers for specific population groups. So Black, African American for one, or Hispanic, Latino for another. And what we are seeing is rising levels of educational attainment, specifically bachelor's degrees or more. So Omaha for Black population used to be well below the U.S. average for Black regarding bachelor's degree or more percentage. We've now um, been able to catch the national average and go up above it, so just among like top 100 metros, for example, Omaha used to rank about in the middle regarding the portion of a black population that had a bachelor's degree. Now we're in the top quarter of the uh, 100 largest metros in black population for having higher education. So that's led to a drop in unemployment, a, a very large drop. It's been cut in half versus the Great Recession, and then we're seeing incomes go up, poverty come down. And the the one variable that hasn't quite turned the corner yet is is homeownership. So we're seeing a continued downtrend in homeownership among our Black population, same as the U.S. trend. But Mm -hmm. we are hopeful that after a few years of these better economic conditions, Mm -hmm. and again, this is pre-COVID, so we know things are Kind of crazy right now, and hopefully we'll we'll rebound quickly. But you know, it takes a few years to save for a down payment and you know, or pay off student debt or or those types of things. So, homeownership would definitely going to be the last key item to turn. But we're seeing again various improvements within our Hispanic population as well. So things at least pre-COVID were definitely trending in the right direction.
1: You know, here in the Archdiocese, I think about some of the consolidation of our schools that have served our urban communities. I think about Q's. I think about the consortium. I know that there's been an effort to respond to those realities and to make the church present there. Is there a consensus as to some of the initiatives and things that have helped to to turn those trends?
2: Well, it's hard to know which ones in particular are are having an impact, but I think that they all are to some degree. And, you know, it it was kind of after the World Herald kind of ran a pretty big series comparing population outcomes among whites versus our black population locally, that a lot of initiatives started, you know, there's Building Bright Futures, There was a variety of scholarship programs. I know at UNO, for example, there were special office created so that would provide more student support. Because the hard thing about college is that Life is going on at the same time, so it's, it's complicated. You know, again, there's dating relationships. People are trying to work. Maybe you're a, a first-time uh, college attendee for your family, so you don't have, like, a mentor to go build upon their experience. So those types of efforts to not have people slip through the cracks or just give them the support that they need at, at the time when they need it have, have been really beneficial for moving people from starting college to actually finishing and you know, obtaining that degree.
1: How do you see the church fitting in to, to this equation? If You can speak to a pastor who has a parish downtown or even just in the, the general kind of area that would be considered urban. What opportunities would you want to bring to their attention? What trends would you want them to be aware of?
2: I think one is just to let them know how important the work that they're doing is. I mean, they, they hopefully realize that, but, you know, helping people along, you know, those, those parishes or just through the school system that help people first get that high school diploma, because if you, if you don't achieve that, then, then the outcomes are, are really difficult. So just to give you a, an example, those who have less than a high school Education, the poverty rate is over 20%. But if, if you can get at least a high school diploma, the poverty rate is about 10%. So there's a huge break there. And then if we can somehow move them on to a bachelor's degree, then poverty almost disappears. It's about 3% for, for a population that has a bachelor's degree or more. So wow. that's why education is so important. So to let them realize the efforts that they're making. If you're having a bad day or whatever, to keep at it because you really can have a lifelong impact on young people or, and their families. Wow,
1: David, Go let's ahead. just thank you for that, and you know, for again, for all of our our community leaders, the parishes that are downtown and in the urban areas. Like, thank you. What you're doing matters. Again, we sometimes don't know the.
2: The situation that they're in, you know, we're not walking in their shoes always. We can try to understand, but a lot of times there's things going on in the background that that we might not be aware of that really has an impact. So just being cognizant of that is is very um, helpful. The other thing I was going to say is that anything that parishes can do for family support regarding couples and and couples being together, you know, we we all have all heard the stats of, you know, when there's uh, mother father involved that student outcomes are much better and that extends to more social aspects such as having lower crime or less teen pregnancy or or whatever that characteristic is so when we outreach to families and and have them uh, supported whether that's initial like marriage preparation or family support as people go through. So some of more of the counseling aspects that say Catholic uh, social services might provide, that's extremely important as well. Because when we see single parent families,
1: that's when poverty rates are, are greatly elevated as opposed to married couples. You're talking data, but it might as well be a theology course just on the foundations and the importance of caring for families and and marriages.
0: It's also just, Hopefully encouraging for those of us who support inner city schools, whether it's the Q's or whether it's consortium. I sort of get stuck on like, well, we need to make disciples and our schools need to be doing that. And in, in many ways, we're trying really just to live out our discipleship by hopefully lifting kids out of poverty. Because if you can get a Catholic education, I don't know what the stats are on that. Like if the probability of being lifted out of poverty increases if you go to a Catholic school, that be might be something that the superintendent might want to look at if you had that kind of data. But education is is a big part. And I think the stats that our schools have that that show that the number of kids from those grade schools who go into high school probably increase, they're probably higher than the public school. So, And again, I, there's there's lots of variables that go into all that, but uh, I just think it's encouraging when we think about, cause we don't have a lot of parishes in North Omaha and uh, we struggle to serve in South Omaha. We just don't have enough priests that speak Spanish and it's just really difficult. I mean, I think the priests that, that are there and the people that are, there are loving it and they love serving and they're just, they're amazing. And, and they always encourage me uh, when I see them, how they work and do ministry. But I, I sort of maybe, like, gosh, isn't there more that we could do? And, and I just, I, the words, when you talked about how education can really lift people out of poverty, I think that encouraged me that we're doing the right thing with Q's and with consortium. I think there's more we could do. I'm familiar with a group called Abide that places themselves in neighborhoods to really just to abide with it, to live there and to grow in relationship and really can help families, not through programs, but really through relationships.
2: All those efforts are, are just so worthwhile just because... They truly do make a difference. And, and like I said, not only can that strengthen those who are doing the ministry day to day, but maybe that's another point that our, our benefactors you know, need to know for how important their support is. Because without the financial support, it, you know, it's hard to, to run any program, you know, no matter what it is. We do see the impact across the board from a variety of different programs.
1: Listening to the two of you talk, I'm inspired. It's like, gosh, you know, the work that is happening at some of our urban parishes, and Father, you mentioned queues and Consortium, like those are something for all of us in the Archdiocese to be proud of, to rally around. And I'm reminded it's a little bit trite, but I think it's true that kind of turn of the phrase that, you know, we don't serve them, we don't serve the communities of urban Omaha because they're catholic. We serve them because we're catholic. So, thank you David. That's really helpful. Let's just talk a little bit about the suburbs. I think, you know, depending on your perspective, life is, you know, maybe imagined to be perfect in in the suburbs. But I remember a presentation you did not not too long ago. We just talked about some of the the hidden poverty west of 72nd. Sometimes I think we imagine Poverty only to be something that you find downtown or on the off-ramps of the interstate when you get a chance to connect with someone who's asking for some help. Can you talk a little bit about that, the hidden poverty yeah. that's, that's hiding in our suburbs west of 72nd?
2: That's one thing that, that we have seen shift again. If you go back to 2000, which was one of the best economic environments after the 1990s growth and the dot-com boom and all that there were only three neighborhoods west of 72nd that had a poverty rate of 10% or more. So uh, an elevated level of poverty was was very uncommon. But in more recent years, rather than being three neighborhoods, there's like 23 neighborhoods where poverty is over 10%, and five of those have poverty rates over 20%, all west of 72nd Street. So again, you throw numbers around, but but to put that in, into perspective, you know, that's either one in 10 or one in five people who are, are in poverty. So if you kind of consider your church and maybe the pew or two in front of you, out of every 10 people, at least one, maybe two, are going to be in poverty if, if it was spread across the board equally. That is a concern. It's something that isn't as well known for sure, especially as we talk about suburban areas or Western Douglas County, just to realize that there are pockets of poverty. And while that is largely centered around what I'd call like west of Benson, so around Maple and Fort Street, close to I-680, that's kind of where one pocket that is. There is also poverty uh, that's elevated in Millard and in Valley it'd be surprising to a lot of folks to realize that there are those harder economic situations out there in what is perceived to be our higher income areas.
1: How would a church recognize that? How would a community of believers recognize that? And again, I know this could be a whole other podcast, but how do you begin to step into that?
2: Good question. Well, I I think you see it on the ground, to a degree. Uh, again, I'm I'm at St. Columbkill in, in Papillion, and and for Thanksgiving we have a ministry where we deliver boxes of turkey and and the stuffing and all the things that a family might need, not only for Thanksgiving but like for an entire week. And there is always, you know, hundreds of households in in the nearby area that call in to request to be part of that program. So mm-hmm. again, people might not realize that you know Papillion is probably one of the highest income places in the area. But poverty exists, and there's different circumstances and new people to the area. Sometimes there's that direct connection of people calling in or coming to visit the parish office and, or St. Vincent DePaul to, to see what kind of assistance is, is available. Other times, the numbers can tell us a little bit about what the situation is, but then maybe there's some outreach as well that places can do yeah. to realize, oh, here's an apartment complex, maybe some individuals there might be needing some support. Is, is there a way where we could leave flyers in the area that people could access? And just be aware that that we have not only our church services, but other ways that you might be able to participate in, in the various church ministries. It's a hard question, but I, I think that there are ways to try to reach people where they're at.
1: Well, it seems like there's, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a correlation. If there's a higher instance or concentration of of poverty, chances are what's probably correlated to that is opportunities for educational help, opportunities for family assistance, because there might be more single, single parent households there. And so obviously, you know, providing material assistance in terms of food, but then some of those other supports we talked about, educational support, encouragement for families, you know, childcare and and support for single parent homes, like the opportunities seem almost almost endless because it seems like those things cluster together.
2: Yeah, and and we're we're seeing that right now, of course, in the COVID situation. Nebraska has what a lot of what we would call working poor. So we we rank very highly second highest among all the states when we take a look at of our families in poverty, how many either have a worker or have a worker who is working full-time and all year round and still their income is just not high enough to get above the poverty level. So when you have something like uh, either outright suspension of a job, say at a, a restaurant or cleaning service or whatever, hotel uh, accommodations that might be going on right now, that will just further make difficult living situation. So right now I I imagine we're just seeing a lot higher demand for basic needs, food and maybe rent assistance or electricity and other utilities.
0: So we've mentioned the word poverty several times. And and I think it's important that we define that because uh, when I was doing some of my studies for the pastoral planning, I thought, well, okay, what does this mean? And I was shocked because I think I'm poor as a priest, everything's kind of taken care of for me, you know, with room and board and all that. So I never have to worry about that. But my salary isn't that huge. And I thought, well, my salary, it's got to be below poverty level. What is the definition of poverty?
2: Yeah, so poverty is kind of a concept. It's actually a mathematical calculation, not a complex one, but it takes up every individual in the family, their income, whatever earned income that is from wages, salary, or social security income, anything that's monetary income coming in. And it divides it by a threshold that is set based upon how large the family is. So the common example is if you're a family of four with, with two parents and two children, that level of income, uh, the poverty level is about $25,000 per year. If you're a, a person living alone, the poverty threshold is much different, around like $12,000 a year. So social security income for for an older person is usually enough to get above the poverty line, but just barely, not much above the poverty line. So again, college students, for example, have a lot of elevated poverty because you might only be working part-time in these types of things. But with that measure, as it makes the calculation, if your income is $25,001 and you're above the poverty line, you're not in a much different situation than if you're $10 below the poverty line. So it really is just a statistical measure to see. And and that's why, for example, like free and reduced lunch goes up to 1.85 times the poverty line for eligibility for that, you know, within the school system, for example. So people are kind of constantly moving into and and out of poverty uh, from time to time as their economic situation changes But it it is a difficult concept to work
0: through. But if you just use that example, there's four people in the family, mom, dad, and two kids, and they're making $25,000. And then just imagine that the percentage of the population in your zip code, whatever, I don't know, like the cathedral neighborhood, you think, oh, that's really good. But I think it's like 30% poverty. Like, So 30% of your people right there are like, if there's a family of four, it's, they're making $25,000 or less. And just so sort of those of us who are listening, who, are, who do okay, like what would you do if you only had $25,000 and you had to take care of four people? Like, and there's a lot of people in our neighborhoods that, that live that way.
2: Right. And, and poverty doesn't necessarily speak on the income that would be needed to provide a certain uh, level or, or standard of living. It was uh, established to kind of talk about what what would kind of be the basic nutritional requirements for food that you would need to support that family and, and a few other costs but it was, it was largely initially developed in the 60s based upon food costs well again we know with child care and health care and all the costs that a family faces i know a lot of groups would say that, that you need to be in that in the 50 to 60,000 thousand dollar range to provide a, a realistic amount of income to provide a a nice situation for your family. So again, uh, the poverty measure isn't perfect by any means, but it does allow us to compare across geographies and see where it's relatively higher or lower.
0: Yeah. So when we ask questions, why is there so much violence? Why are people so angry? Why are they rioting? Why are there so many people in jail? Like, why are so many families broken? What You know, if we ask these questions, like, well, because they have a very different situation than us. And I know it's in America and everybody has a chance to get, you know, it's a free country and it's free education and everybody can pursue the American dream. But for many people, they're already starting from way behind the, the start line. And, and I don't think we often realize that. Yeah. So I just, I, I just wanted to point that out. Like there's poverty, isn't just like they're kind of struggling from paycheck to paycheck. It means like <laughs> they're not really paying their bills. <laughs>
2: Uh, yeah and, and one, one thing about poverty that goes against perception is that people think poverty is, is chronic poverty where month after month or year after year you're, you're in a poverty situation. Well, that's actually relatively low. When, when you look over a three year period, census has these products that, and surveys that track this, only about three percent of the population would be in poverty in all of those 36 months over three years. But when you break it down to a two month segment, where your two-month income would be below the monthly threshold of income that's up to a third of the population that has what we call a bout of poverty within a three-year period so just between the three of us here on on the podcast over the course of three years one of us would have had an instance or a bout of poverty if we reflected the, the general population so that is much higher than what most people would realize. And that's where, again, the short-term social support and and material assistance programs have such great importance. Just kind of that safety net so people don't fall through the cracks or or have such a challenge as they might lose a few hours at work or suffer an illness or something. Maybe you can't go into work, like break a leg or something like that, where that that can really limit your ability over the short term.
1: Thank you for that, David, because I think that offers – two things one it offers a sense of hope that if we can be present to people at the right time in their moment of need we can really make a difference in helping them not slip through the cracks and it, i think it, it it doesn't seem quite so overwhelming it's a, i mean it's, a, it's an empowering to know that okay we can be present to people in their time of need we can really make a difference we can make an impact
2: yeah and and again there's so many people that think those in poverty, oh, they're they're just not working, they they could be doing more, they're not looking for work. But again, in Nebraska, one of our issues is that for whatever reason, the wage structure doesn't quite always allow everybody to get an income that's above that poverty line, even if you're working all year round. So Mm -hmm. that's where some of our challenges lie in 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 particular. And and sometimes that's why we, again, have some of the out-migration that we do, is that people do see higher incomes uh, available in in other locations of the country.
0: You're not coming here with some sort of liberal agenda to say, you know, we need to raise the uh, salaries of people. You're just saying, here are the facts.
2: (laughs) That's all that we do is try to present what the numbers tell us. And again, there'd be a lot of research to say, as as you do raise the minimum wage, that sometimes that raises unemployment and and poverty as well, even though it's kind of an unintended consequence. So there's a lot of research out there and and that's what the policy think tanks do a little bit more. We try to be more on the ground just to help people understand the situation that we have here locally or how Omaha compares to other large metros or how our 93 counties compare amongst each other, you know, so that we can uh, target programs and, and do things as needed for those localities.
0: And I don't think it needs to be a political solution. As church, it's a spiritual solution for us, right? It's, a, it's about how we're living out mm-hmm. our faith for one another and how we love our brothers and sisters. And I think that's the issue. It has, has nothing to do with your liberal conservative or whether you your agreement of minimum wage, whether it needs to be raised. Let the pol- politicians figure that out. Maybe we should have, you know, of course the, the church does have sort of a political wing and we certainly lobby and, and we do what we need to do for, for life issues and social issues. But at the end of the day, it's also a spiritual issue. And mm-hmm. we have to have some spiritual solutions. And I think that's the way in which we live and treat our brothers and sisters in our neighborhoods.
2: If your neighbor is suffering, then to a degree, you might be too, because it, it all is for the neighborhood and the, the better the health. And, and we, we have a, a gentleman um, who has some health issues on on our block, and we've just been trying to help him with his yard upkeep and just keeping his things moving forward because it, it's a challenge right now for him with, with those health issues. So. I think I think that's kind of where the church helps and steps in to assist those who are in that type of situation,
1: yeah, I mean, listening to both of you talk, I'm reminded of you know Jesus' story about Lazarus and the rich man and how easy it is to miss those that are near us and I think David, I think you've you've helped give us eyes hopefully to help see those who are around us who who have needs, any kind of closing comments or Big takeaways that you'd like us to walk away with as we close up here?
2: Well, again, I, I just think that there's a lot of, of good opportunities and to realize all the good works that are being done out there, both rural and urban across the Archdiocese, because the challenge really, really, really do differ. I, I did some work for St. Kill just here on our growth. In the parish boundaries, the population's grown by a 1,000 a year or 400 households a year. Well, if let's say 20% of those households are Catholic, Um, That's a lot of people to service in in church per year, you know. So so that's a good problem to have, but it can strain resources. Again, rural challenges are are sometimes different and all the people that are that are working to help all those situations improve just realize how important your work is.
1: Thank you. David, if someone wants to get a hold of you, if a pastor wants a little bit more of an in-depth understanding of their mission field, of the zip codes that make up their parish, how can they get a hold of you?
2: Well, the best thing to do is just Google my name, and that'll bring you uh, to, to my work website. So again, it's David, and last name Drozd, D-R-O-Z-D. That, that's me saying it the way it's uh, spelled so that, that people can see it. Uh, David Drozd and University of Nebraska, and you should pop to me and my contact info, and we can just connect and go from there.
1: Thank you for the work that you do, and you can tell that your faith is pretty intimately intertwined as you think through these things. And thank you just for yeah, helping to open our eyes and see a little bit of the opportunities and trends of the mission field where the Lord has placed us.
2: Thanks so much. It's been a great opportunity to be here and, and hope I could at least provide some insight.
1: Everybody, if you would like to get the show notes, you can find those on equip.archomaha.org. Don't hesitate to yeah to share this with with friends who want to geek out with with you about uh, numbers and, and demographics. Thanks for being here. God bless.